Welcome to Steelcast, Tata Steel UK's podcast about all things related to steel. Our processes, our products, our customers, our people and our communities. My name is Tim Rutter and in this latest series I'm talking to experts and key stakeholders about climate change, sustainability and decarbonisation. Now we've already heard from a number of Tata Steel experts about the fundamentals of climate change, the current challenges around carbon, the demands of society, both for steel and for zero carbon ways of making it. We've heard about the needs of our customers as well as some of the technology options that are open to the steel industry and the infrastructure that might be needed to go with them. And not only the physical infrastructure, but the web of organisations, which importantly includes the research and academic fraternity in helping to solve some of the major issues of our time. Now, back in episode six, we spoke with Director General of UK Steel, Gareth Stace, about some of the legislative issues facing the industry and governments alike. And today I'm very much looking forward to hearing about what those issues sound like from the other side of the fence, or maybe, should I say, the other side of the house. Because joining me today from the constituency that contains the giant Portalbert Steelworks is Member of Parliament for Aberavon, Stephen Kinnock. Stephen, a very warm welcome to uh, the podcast today. Thanks, Tim, and many thanks for inviting me to come on the podcast. No, it's great to have you along. It'll be really interesting to hear your perspective as a, as a long-standing supporter of the steel industry. And of course, you're no stranger to our industry. You're the constituency MP, as I mentioned, for Put All, but uh, you're also chair of the All-Party all Parliamentary Group on Steel, which is a bit of a mouthful, uh, <laughs> but a very influential group. And of course, you're a very fr frequent visitor to the works and support a supporter of the the town, the works, the people, our contractor partners uh, and our community events and so forth. And uh, I know, for example, you are a, a regular participant in the Richard Burton 10K community fundraiser race, which I uh, take my hat off to you because it's a tough one, isn't it? Yes, I've been running that every year since I became uh, an MP in 2015. And what's interesting, Tim, is uh, to to track the time that I do each year. <laughs> and I, I add a minute. It, it's almost exactly a minute every year I add on to my time. I so, guess age doesn't uh, come alone, yeah, does I'm, it? I'm, I'm still managing to come in under an hour. I think it's when you when you come, you start coming in o over an hour, you start uh, getting pretty <laughs> depressed about it. But uh, yeah, I enjoy it. It's a fantastic day out and it's uh, it couldn't happen without the support of Tata Steel. So uh, the community really, really appreciates the uh, the support that you give. And it's a great example of the way that the, the steel industry is so deeply embedded uh, in our community and in my Aberavon constituency. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, the guys who run it do a fantastic job. And we'll come on to that importance of the industry and the community, I'm sure, when we through our chat today. But, uh, you know, before we get on, I know the theme of this podcast series is focusing on decarbonisation and sustainability of the steel industry, which is a challenge in itself. But it'd be really interesting before we get into the details of that and your perspective on it to try and get your views on the historical and, and the current importance of the steel industry to the UK economy, not just your own uh, constituency? It's the beating heart of the economy and the, the community in Aberavon, but it, it's the beating heart of the entire British economy. It's the, the backbone of uh, our manufacturing sector. Um, everything from the cars that we drive, the trains that we ride in, the offices we work in, the homes we live in, the, the tins we eat our baked beans from, the the knives and forks we use. I mean, it is uh, truly a foundation industry that feeds into our critical national infrastructure, into our defence industry, 
you name it, Tim. I mean, it, steel is everywhere that you look. And um, it's also, I think, got to be a critical part of the future. It's got a proud history and a very proud present. But I think we've got to look at it as having a dynamic future, playing a crucial role in the transition to a lower carbon economy. Absolutely no way we can do that without a steel industry. So uh, mm. what I think, where I think there's a bit of a gap really is between the vital importance that it plays in our economy and then the lack of support that it has had over the years from, from government. And, and that gap is what we're constantly trying to close in Parliament. Steel MPs constantly pushing uh, so that the, the value of the industry is recognised and also the future potential of the industry is recognised. Uh, and that, I think, is where government has a crucial role to come into a partnership with the steel industry to build a better future for uh, every steel worker, for their families and also for our planet. Mm. And it is a fairly fundamental question. And I'm sure we'll come on to it as we as we go through the pod today about, you know, what sort of country does uh, government want on representing uh, the population, you know, is it a, is it a, do you remember George Osborne talked about the march of the makers, you know, is there a, an, a, a desire within the country that, that we continue to make and manufacture our own products or, or, or is the mood going down the sort of service industry model? And I think that's, that is a fairly fundamental position for a, for a government of either party to decide upon, isn't it? I think that's absolutely right. And uh, fundamentally, if if you accept that the biggest weakness in the British economy of the last decades has been the so-called productivity crisis, that we our output per worker uh, in the UK is significantly lower than it is for the, the major economies that are similar to ours, the Germans, the French, the United States. The, there's a clear reason for that, which is that in this country, we've allowed our manufacturing sector to shrink from about 30% of GDP in the 1970s to 9% of GDP today. Now, you get a lot more productivity out of manufacturing than you do out of services. Mm. But we've allowed in this country, our, our you know, we've flipped from manufacturing to services. We've flipped from production to consumption. We've got mm. an an economy that is floating on debt and on really house prices going up, which isn't real money in a sense. It's not real productivity. It's not real actual substance. What do you produce as a country? So in my view, the only way to address this is to rebuild our manufacturing sector. We need a modern manufacturing renaissance in this country. I'm not talking about going back to the old days of single factories that can employ thousands and thousands of people. Of course, we still have that in Port Talbot, mm. and, and that has to continue because we need the big backbone that the steel industry provides to the rest of manufacturing. But we've got to build a new manufacturing uh, sector, which is actually going to rebalance the British economy, address the productivity crisis, and also address the fact that for years, so much wealth and resources has been going into London in the southeast, particularly into the banking and financial services sectors. Well, that's 
okay for the you know the the bankers and the people who graduate mm. from university that that go into those industries but what about the apprentices what about vocational training what about actually building a manufacturing sector that we can once again really be proud of that used to be the envy of of the world there's no reason that we can't do that again tim but mm. one thing is clear we cannot do it without a vibrant and competitive and highly productive steel industry feeding the rest of the sector. So we've got to get the basics right in the British yeah. manufacturing sector before we can build build out on on that and use that as a platform. Yeah, and I'm sure lots of listeners will be sympathetic to that perspective about the importance of a, a manufacturing sector for the economy. And, you know, look at Tart Steel in the UK. It's a sort of two to three billion pound a year turnover business. So it's quite significant economically. But but there's another side to the steel industry, isn't it? With this sort of this cultural significance. You know, I don't want to hark back either to the sort of the, the good old days and the heritage of the steel industry. But where steel industries exist, they do actually support a community, not through just such the events we talked about earlier, but but by, you know, giving stable, well-paid jobs to a whole community. And it's not just Tata Steel, but it does feel from within the industry, it certainly feels we have a cultural significance as well. Do you think? I agree with that completely. You know what I do? I, I think it comes back to work. Uh, work is what defines us, whether you like it or not. A big part of your identity, a big part of the identity, I'm sure, of pretty much everybody you know, is where do they work? What do they do? It's one of the first questions you ask, isn't it? You, you meet somebody new in the pub having a pint. You say, well, what do you do? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it is absolutely fundamental to who we are, to our sense of self-esteem, to that sense of, you know, putting food on the table for your family, the pride that you get from that, but also the sense of camaraderie, the team spirit. You know, human beings are social animals. We need to interact with others. That's not just socially, though. That's also at work where you want to be part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah. And the steel, there's no better example of that than the steel industry. When I, you know, I come to the works, so I talk to the to the men and women that work there. They're so proud of the fact that what we produce in Patolba is actually helping to build the country and you know so proud of the big iconic buildings you know from Wembley Stadium to the Principality to you know yeah. you look at that and you say I, I helped to build that you know the cars on the road I helped to to build that I, you know that that crucially important piece of kit that can actually help somebody's to improve somebody's quality of life a washing machine a dishwasher whatever it might be I helped to build that gives you a tremendous sense of self-esteem. So you're right about the cultural impact of it, but I see it actually as being profoundly linked to the, the sense of identity that you get from your work and from being part of it. Your work is not just about the paycheck at the end of the month. Of course, that's an important part of it, but it's about much more than that. It's about who we are and the role that we play in society and being part of something bigger than just yourself, not just being an individual, but being part of a team. And yeah. I think that's absolutely crucial. And the Steelworks is the act, the living uh, embodiment of that. Yeah. And I know that people within it certainly have that feeling, that sense of worth, the, the, the importance of what we do for, for everything. But I know we want to get on to the uh, decarbonisation of the steel industry topic, but this whole discussion we're having about the modern day relevance of steel and 
you know what what the future will look like is 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 relevant for the context of of all the decisions that could or, or need to be made about decarbonizing industries such as steel um and the and the balance they have on the economy and society and um you know you talked earlier then about the the recent focus on the southeast um but one of the current government's key policies is around leveling up isn't it leveling up society and you know i know it's not a labor party policy but it's it's very difficult to argue against the principle isn't it when when most steel towns across the uk uh would be net beneficiaries of some sort of leveling up what's your perspective on that principle it's a great soundbite uh, and certainly not one I would disagree with because it recognises the fact that over recent decades there has been a big shift in wealth and talent and resources away from our industrial and manufacturing heartlands and into London and the southeast and it's flipped from manufacturing to services and particularly financial services. Now, you know, I've got no problem with the financial services industry creating lots of jobs, generating lots of money, and as long as they pay their taxes and some of that's coming back into the exchequer, mm. that's fine. But what levelling up recognises is that it, that hasn't been happening. So the money and wealth and resources has been going to London, it's been staying there, and we've allowed manufacturing to collapse really down to 9% GDP from 30% of GDP as it was in the 70s, as I was saying earlier. So levelling up is fine as a soundbite, but the big question for me is what does it mean in practice? Mm. And I would replace levelling up with three words, manufacturing, manufacturing and manufacturing. Because actually, if you want to help our communities to stand on their own two feet, if you want to create a sustainable model of creating, generating wealth, generating good jobs, good jobs that you can raise a family on, bringing pride back and bringing this, the, all that sense of self-esteem that we were talking about earlier and dynamism and economic opportunities, the answer is manufacturing. The answer is not a soundbite about levelling up, which people aren't entirely sure what it means. And it's if levelling up means just sort of using public government money to fund certain projects and to maybe put a lick of paint on the, uh, the, the, the water fountain in the local uh, shop in High Street. You know, that's, that's a bit superficial for me, a bit cosmetic. Mm. Uh, the deeper structural problem is about the way in which we've allowed manufacturing to shrink in this country. Leveling up should be about that. You know, I think we need a bold target of saying let's aim within one parliamentary term to get manufacturing up from 9% of GDP to 15% of GDP. Let's have a bold investment driven program, an industrial strategy which looks at skills, infrastructure, energy policy, um, our trading policy, you know, get making our manufacturing sector competitive again, linking up with our world beating universities to create clusters uh, of, of, of high tech manufacturing, but based on, for example, steel supply chains, you know, that that's that's the that would be the exciting vision that I think we need. Uh, leveling up is fine as a soundbite. I'm mm. still I have to say not entirely sure what it means in terms of the big radical changes we need in the entire way that the British economy works. Yeah, and and we will come on to uh, industrial strategies just in a moment. But you know, you mentioned earlier that that manufacturing, manufacturing, manufacturing 
may not in the future be single factories with thousands of people. It might be a very different looking manufacturing industry in the UK. And I guess if, uh, you know, those people looking on and looking at levelling up and it, you know, you may argue it's a it's a political move rather than a, a, an industrial strategic move. But if you look at what's happening in Teesside now and the, the investment that's going into Teesside with hesitate to say the green economy but you know a number of smaller industries partner industries going into a former steel town people might say well there's an example already of the sorts of leveling up which you you would recognize Stephen, wouldn't you yeah i I don't know a huge amount about the teesside model i've heard and read good things about it and um i i really do want to know more about it and if there's if that's the kind of example that we can scale up and spread across the country. Uh, absolutely, that is what I would support. Um, you know, I, I'm always reluctant to talk about other models of, in mm. other countries because you know every country is different. We've all got our different history and our different experiences. But you do have to look at the German model and say, well, their heavy industry, you know, their coal mining industry collapsed as ours did in the 1980s. But the big difference is they had a plan for repurposing. Uh, their workforce and creating a a very diverse manufacturing sector built mainly on the back of of family run businesses that had uh, and and what was hugely Im- important in Germany was the banking sector they created these sparkassen which were only about lending to small manufacturing businesses no mortgage lending no retail lending no lending people money to buy a house they couldn't actually afford to buy and be swimming in debt for the rest of their lives it was only lending to small manufacturing businesses and they created this uh, ecosystem of small manufacturing businesses which many of which have ended up you know manufacturing and selling widgets to china Mm. Um, and the German, and of course, the German automotive industry has been a big part of that success factor. So the the German manufacturing sector has basically stayed at 25% of their GDP since the 1970s. It's been stable all the way through. So we need to look at all of those things and say, okay, great, there's some pockets of good practice in places like Teesside. But how are we going to scale that up? How are we going to turn that into a project for national renewal? right across the country and that requires really big thinking as i say a a proper energy policy a proper industrial strategy changing our banking sector bringing in something that looks like sparkers and you know Mm. really unleashing the creative potential of our young people through a proper skills agenda and apprenticeships you know that that Build okay. Looking at examples like Teesside, but building on them and modelling the whole economy on that basis—that's what you need if you're going to have a modern manufacturing renaissance. Yeah, because you talk about Germany, and I guess that is decades of a, you know, proactive, deliberate industrial strategy. And I know, you know, it's a slightly bigger population than the UK, but whereas the UK steel outputs seven-ish million tons, Germany's at forty million tons so mm. it's clearly got a, a bigger backbone in terms of that and uh, but that's largely a political decision but it's interesting you talk about industrial strategy and interesting really interesting for you to talk about some of the things that y- you personally would like to see but of course we had johnny reynolds a uh, colleague of yours uh, on the front bench um he came a couple of weeks ago and visited patolbert and he went to see shot and our downstream business he was hugely impressed um but he was very bullish about putting in place an industrial strategy if the labor party uh, got into power at the next election you know you would have quite a big vested interest in a in that proactive industri- industrial strategy 
is it the sort of thing you'd like some of the things you've talked about today are we likely to see those on on the labor party manifesto in a couple of years do you think 100 percent uh we've already pledged a 28 billion pound a year for six years a, a green investment fund uh, three billion of that is earmarked for the steel industry to support the transition to uh uh, cleaner steelmaking technologies. And I'm sure that's something we'll come on to. It's a very live topic, I know, for the yes, works and, and what we do about the transition. Uh, so it, that's already nailed on. Uh, we have that pledge. Uh, we recognise that there isn't a single steel industry in the world that has been able to make this transition on its own. I mean, just look at what they've done in Spain recently. Uh, the 2.5 billion euro, it's either euro or pounds, uh, partnership between the Spanish government and the steel industry, some grants and some loans, uh, you know, so the Germans, as you've already mentioned, have been doing this for decades. Uh, Italians are really supporting their steel industry as well. So, you know, I, I see that difference between our output in, in terms of steel in, our, in, in the UK, 7 million tonnes to 40 odd million tonnes in Germany. I see that as an opportunity. Look at the headroom that we've got to grow. If you look across the UK economy, there aren't that many sectors with huge headroom to grow. Where, and by the way, what we produce uh, in the UK is less significantly less than domestic demand. So even if it's just actually producing for our own uh, country, let alone what we could actually do in terms of exports, um, you know, there's a huge. I see these things as an opportunity, but you. The steel industry can't do it on its own. It needs to be in partnership with government, with government providing uh, some capital and also a policy environment uh, that is going to give, provide a launch pad for our steel industry going forward. And it was brilliant to have Johnny at the Potolbert Steelworks. He was absolutely so impressed with it. I think he was, <laughs> I mean, gobsmacked is the word, just by the sheer scale of, of the place and, and the awesome power of the machinery and the processes and the awesome skills of the men and women that work there. So, you know, Johnny was really impressed and he was already sold on the need for a steel industry, an active and, and competitive and profitable mm -hmm. steel industry in the UK. But I think uh, our our little tour of the works um, absolutely, uh, you know, put him onto a whole new level in terms of his support for the industry. Yeah, well, that's why we bring people in, Steve, as you know, you know, yeah. uh, the old PRs that you're saying used to be, we will take them straight out to lunch. And now I've got a philosophy of we'll bring them straight into the works because everybody, everybody Absolutely. loves the steelworks and loves the people and, and is, is is blown away by the science and technology within the industry when they come in. Uh, but it's interesting you talk about the sort of domestic demand and potential opportunity to grow the size of the UK steel industry. And I wonder with, you know, recent world events, are people starting to worry about security of energy supply and security of uh, grain or other materials, whether you think that is leading to some sort of shift across all parties about saying we need to be more self-reliant on some fundamental uh, industries and whether steel would be one of those. And you see that the mood for what some people call traditional industries, we wouldn't say that ourselves, but some of the bigger industries such as steel actually being focused more on domestic demand and such that we have a greater self-sufficiency is that is that the way the wind's blowing Stephen? yeah I, as you know tim I, I knock on a lot of doors i talk to a lot of people not just in in aberavon when i'm knocking doors but I, I go and help the party sometimes in other constituencies and i was up in wakefield recently and ended up having a long uh chat with a very nice a couple on the doorstep in in wakefield 
about the way in which our country needs to find a way to stand more firmly on its own two feet. Uh, we need to build more resilience. Uh, we need to recognize that big shocks like COVID, like the Ukraine war, you know, that that's, we should assume that's going to carry on happening. I mean, we hope that it won't, but, you know, we, we should always be ready for shocks. You need to have a system, an economy, supply chains that are robust and resilient and that you have control over yourself. I'm not at all saying that we should have protectionism. We've still got to be an open trading nation. But if you allow your entire manufacturing sector to collapse, again, we're back to this, you actually also reduce your ability to stand on your own two feet, to be confident in your supply chains, to, I, I, you know, I think COVID had a big impact because um, you know, most people accept that the pandemic started in China. And then what was happening, we were getting all these testing kits, you open them up and it says made in China. And people were saying, well, hang on a second, we got this pandemic from China and now they're selling us millions of tons of personal protective equipment and tests. And a lot of people were just saying, well, we should be making this stuff ourselves. We're a highly advanced economy. Sorry about the bell, that's uh, uh, the division bell. So. Uh, or startup bell for, for parliament. Um, so, we, you know, that, that started it. And then, of course, the Ukraine war, I think, has, has, has kind of turbocharged the way people are thinking about how we need to be more resilient. We, we need to bring things back on shore. We need to be able to produce more of our own stuff, not just because uh, it's the right thing to do for jobs uh, and for um, the climate agenda, uh, but also because of what some people call sovereign capability, our own ability as a sovereign nation to stand on our own two feet whilst trading and cooperating very effectively with other countries. And I think that there is a shift in the public mood on that. And, and that's one of the reasons why we need this really active government and active industrial strategy. Yeah, and there seems there's a few things sort of coming together to a head here, because I know you weren't in favour of Brexit personally, but I think pretty much all the steel constituencies voted leave. Uh, and I suspect having, you know, knowing lots of people in the industry on, on the on the basis that they might allow governments more freedom to support industries such as steel. Now, that Brexit deal is done. You know, when we've got the challenges of decarbonisation, energy costs, domestic supply, you know, what are those challenges and opportunities you started talking about there in a post-Brexit world for the steel industry? Yeah, of course, one, one thing I would say is that um, Spain and Germany and Italy and France, they're all member states of the European Union. And they are all providing massive support to their steel industry. I just talked about that 2.5 billion deal uh, that the Spanish government has done with its industry. So being a member state of the, the European Union has never prevented support to industry. There are state aid rules in the European Union, but you make a government makes its case to the European Commission saying, well, actually, this is going to support research and development in terms of dealing with particularly climate action. And you will always get an exemption from the European Commission on state aid. So this idea that we couldn't have done it while we're in the EU is actually just a myth, I'm afraid. But but the fact is, as you rightly say, we have left the European Union now. I'm, you'll recall, Tim, I was 
opposed to the idea of having a second referendum. I always felt the country had voted. Yes, I campaigned for Remain, but I accepted the result. And I, But I did feel that we should have done a deal which kept us much closer to the uh, single market so that we could trade as smoothly as and as effectively as possible with the European Union. And I, I, do, I do worry that, um, you know, there was this idea that the impact, the negative impact of leaving the single market was going to be compensated for by doing lots of trade deals with Australia and the United States and India. And, but there's very, very little evidence of those trade deals actually materialising. And also, they don't really make that much difference because one of the basic rules of trade is, the, they call it the law of gravity. You trade with the countries that are closest to you uh, and uh, where you have well-established links. You know, we do more, the UK does more trade with Ireland than it does with India and China combined. Yeah, so, which is ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it's just the, it's that the reality. It's the laws of gravity. So yeah. I think we have to push forward with the opportunities that are there for the uh, British government, working in tandem with the Welsh government, of course, where we can. But it's the UK government that has the firepower, really, the economic firepower, to to get on get on with an industrial strategy that's going to support the transition uh, to cleaner, greener steel making, going to support skills, going to support uh, a, a, an energy policy that actually works for our, our energy intensive uh, users. And we could have done all this while we're in the EU. We're out of the EU now. There's no excuses anymore for the government to try and blame somebody else. They've got to get on with it, take responsibility, show some leadership, because there are a lot of jobs and a lot of li livelihoods that are on the line with this. Yeah, and, so, and some bigger issues for the whole of the country. But it's, thanks very much for leading us nicely into this topic of the sort of brighter, greener future and the green green industry, because all of the conversations we've had in this podcast series indicate that decarbonising the steel is really a must. It's not a nice to have anymore from a customer's perspective, from a legislative's perspective, from a moral perspective. And I don't think anyone we've had in the podcast has been in favour of simply offshoring carbon responsibilities and say, fine, we'll close the steel industry, make it somewhere else in the world and bring it in. That's not the answer for a global issue. No one's suggesting it is. But whichever option seems to be laid out on the table in terms of technology changes comes at an enormous financial cost, which cyclical industries such as steel will we're always going to struggle to bear on their own. But from the other side of the table, you you may say, well, what role should government have in supporting a what is a private industry, which is you know arguably around a political decision? It's quite a complex mix, isn't it? You know, the political decision to to say we're going to set a, a carbon neutral targets that's a that's arguably a political decision. Is it right for the governments then to expect private industries to? have to bear the cost of that change on their own? No, it's not possible for what is effectively a policy-driven decision, isn't it? I mean, I, all industry wants to work towards saving the planet and dealing with the climate crisis, but they also fundamentally have to uh, think about the bottom line and they have to um, generate a profit and... Uh, keep the shareholders happy, and you know we we all accept that. We all understand that. Um, so the only way to address this is through a partnership. There has to be a partnership between government and business, 
so that government provides business with the support it needs to deal with this extraordinary issue that we have to deal with. And in a sense, it is a one-off thing because we know what we need to do to address uh, CO2 emissions. We know what we need to do to help to work in partnership to save the planet. And once it's done, and once the investment is made, then we transition to a better future. It's not as if industry is coming to government and saying, we need your support forevermore. What industry is actually saying is we need this support now to get us over this bump in the road. And when we get to the other side, we've got a really sustainable and exciting future ahead of us. So I think government's going to have to bite the bullet and say, yes, this is there's going to be some cost. But we borrow on the international markets to provide the funding that is required to support the industry on a 50-50 basis where there's cost sharing. And, you know, we, we know that there's lots of discussion and plans for what we need to do in Portalbert and ideas around electric arc furnace, uh, transition to green hydrogen. Uh, you know, and I know some of this stuff is not something we can talk about in great detail now, but we all know that that's there. None of that can happen without government support. So, you know, the top management at Tata Steel, they need to, to go in at the top level of the UK government. I mean, I mean, I'm talking, talk to the Prime Minister, talk to the Chancellor Exchequer, talk to the Business Secretary, knock heads together. It's going to be up to the Prime Minister to make this happen. And then the plan, transition plan has to be for a just transition. So mm -hmm. that, the, that where we move towards that new future, um, you know, that it doesn't result in huge job losses. It actually re results in rotating people into new ways of working, new technologies. Um, and of course, those who have already given decades to the industry, I mean, they, they may well not be there for this new phase. They've done their bit. They mm. hand over to the new generation. And and we need so we need a, a, a long term plan um, and community union and the other steel unions have already laid out what that, what that should look like. The government needs to listen to that. Tata Steel needs to listen to that. And there is a way through this if we all work in partnership, trade unions, employer, government working together. Yeah, there's a whole lot in what you said there, Stephen. I know we could we could spend another hour on this, but part of me thinks, do you think there's an appetite amongst the taxpayer to support the steel industry? And it's not just the investment you talked about, new technologies. You know, arguably you'd say, well, we need a, you've mentioned a number of times on the pod today about uh, an energy strategy. How can, a, how can an industry invest in a new technology if it doesn't know what the cost of electricity is going to be in one year, five years, or 10 years? So um, there's a whole load of issues in there about, has the taxpayer got the appetite for it? And, you know, is there a holistic view of the, the scale of the challenge, do you think? Well, I think for some of the reasons that we mentioned earlier about real concerns around our national security and our sovereign capability, about a real desire to bring back those good jobs that you can raise a family on, bringing back pride to communities and the climate issues. When you put all of those together, I think, you are you've got a strong force pushing the British electorate in a certain direction. And and you know, I've as I say, I've had lots of conversations with people, not just in Aberavon, but in many of the other seats that are in our industrial heartlands or what used to be our industrial heartlands. And unanimously, whether it's a Labour voter or a Conservative voter, they recognise that there is a need for investment and that we just can't go on as we are. We can't just go on with sort of managed decline. Mm, it's really uh, difficult, it's, though, it's isn't it, Steve? You know, we can't do it. We can't allow that to happen. We've got to be ambitious and bold for the future. Yeah. And, and you know, t uh, 
power to your elbow for that for that message. But I guess it's uh, when we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, you say to a consumer who's about to go into the ballot box, say, um, right, the government has some choice what to do with taxpayers' money. It can either reduce your your domestic energy bills or we can reduce the bills of energy intensive industries such as steel. They're only going to vote one way, aren't they? Well, I think if you say that uh, if we don't support these vital industries, it's going to lead to a massive increase in unemployment as people lose their jobs. It's going to lead once again to the fabric of your community being badly hit by that sense of decline and the opportunities for young people going. Uh, And what are you going to replace it with? Are you just going to turn the United Kingdom into one huge Amazon warehouse? (laughs) You know, it's uh, or one huge hedge fund for London and the southeast. You know, what sort of country do we want to live in? Who do we want to be as the British people going forward? And and I think, you know, there are ways of making the case to the British people of saying uh, by not doing this, you might think you're making a saving, but actually it's the definition of a false economy. Yeah. It's the definition of saying, well, I'm taking a short term decision now, which might benefit me, but in the long term, it's disastrous. So, you know, with that that's what politics is about. I hope that the next general election is that what this is going to be about. And if, you know, if the Conservatives want to continue to, to make a case that everything's just fine and tickety-boo in the British economy and we should just carry on as we are, well, I hope they do that because mm-hmm. I think that there's a real appetite for change. I think the next general election will be a change election. And, and you know, that's right. We, we, we've got to present that choice and that plan to the people and then let them take their take their view. When you look at a, at a green manufacturing economy for the UK, Stephen, what do you what's in your mind's eye? I see uh, an economy which is tapping into the amazing know-how, building the research into new forms of technology that are actually going to address the climate crisis whilst creating new businesses, scaling up businesses and creating new jobs. A great example, of course, is the specific project that um, you'll be very familiar with, Tim, you know, steel-based technology for photovoltaic cells, that you put into a film, that you put into the cladding of a house that turns an entire house into a solar panel, basically, which potentially in the long run could end up generating more energy than is required for the house that you can then sell into the grid. Um, What an exciting technology. It's just one example of how the steel, the supply chain, the spin-offs that come from steel are about so much more than just what I think a lot of people think about when they think of the steel industry, you know, the big basics. It's actually about those niche technologies, but it can't work without strong collaboration with universities and all of the wraparound that goes with that. So I envisage uh, an economy based on clusters where we tap into the uh, know-how and world-leading research that we do in this country, but so much of the research that we do in this country then doesn't get taken to market. It doesn't get supported by government and patented. And often then some of our best researchers go off to the United States where they can actually develop their ideas into products. So let's have a proper green industrial strategy that works with that know-how, that research and development, but, uh, but combines it with uh, the, the the big beasts of the manufacturing sector, like the steel industry, um, and really works on taking their those supply chains to the next level. And, and I think that that can create um, 
so many new jobs. So if we get, for example, the specific project through prototyping and to a stage where we're actually able to do that at a mass scale, you're potentially looking at every new build, uh, house and office block in the country, having this technology embedded into those buildings. You know, the scale of that is just enormous. It's, mild, it's, it's mind blowing. And who knows, one day we might even be able to retrofit uh, housing stock on that basis. So, um, you know, we've got to keep that research going, keep investing. But then we also have to reform the banking sector so that we create a new type of bank that is actually only lending to manufacturing businesses to help them to scale up. Um, and of course, the greener you are, the more likely you are to get that kind of support as well. So, you know, there's that, that I, I, I envisage a sort of, in some ways, looking at what countries like Germany have done, but twisting it or tweaking it, I should say, to really uh, help to, to make it reflect where we where our real strength in the United Kingdom, which is our universities and our research capability. That's our strength. Let's play to it and let's build a, a new modern manufacturing renaissance on that basis. Well, it's one hell of a vision, Stephen, and I'm sure uh, every, all of us within the steel industry would uh, would get very excited about it. And, uh, you know, often within uh, an industry, it's difficult to see the wood for the trees and, and people are struggling to see through this massive challenge of decarbonisation, where it might go and what the implications might be. But, you know, when you talk about this uh, potential to increase the capacity of steel in the UK to be sort of self-sufficient, to have yeah, uh, um, maybe more progressive energy policies, to have a real tripartite working relationship between industry and governments and academia, you know, all of a sudden you get used, you, you feel your heart race raising and you get a bit more excited and you look a bit further to the future and um yeah the challenge is for for whatever color of government uh, is in power is to say well how do we make some of that stuff happen no. absolutely right absolutely right but we've got to be bold we've got to be ambitious uh, and that's when we're at our best so listen steam conscious of your time we seem to have covered an awful lot of ground today and i'm i'm really really grateful for you sharing your thoughts uh personal perspectives on behalf of your, uh, the party and the all party parliamentary group as well about the role of government or governments when you've mentioned the welsh government as well and the role they've got to play in the future success of the uk steel industry you know great to hear you talking so positively about the potential of it uh and with such clarity about the sort of visions that you have for it and the targets we could set for the for the uk manufacturing um economy i guess you've got about as much skin in the game as anyone when it comes to our industry and i know that your voice and your support carries a huge amount of weight so let's hope lots of people in and around our industry tune in to this series of podcasts and start to understand the challenges both for our industry and for governments uh, such that some of these practical solutions could be brought to bear uh, for the good of us all so listen i'm going to let you go but thanks very much indeed for joining us Stephen. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate it. And all, all the best to everybody uh, at the works. So thanks for listening to this episode of Steelcast. Please let us know what you think about the topics we're discussing or any other aspects of decarbonisation and sustainability you'd be interested in hearing about. If you want to keep up to date with the latest happenings in Tata Steel UK and in this series, our journey towards decarbonisation, please do subscribe to Steelcast through Podbean, Spotify, Apple, Google or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.